Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome again to New Books in Music. I'm your host, Jordan Stokes. Today, I'll be speaking to Jeffrey Baker of Royal Holloway University about his recent book, El Sistema, Orchestrating Venezuela's Youth, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. El Sistema, the massive Venezuelan youth orchestra program, has been hailed in some quarters as the next big idea in music education. Hello, and welcome again to New Books in Music. I'm your host, Jordan Stokes. Today, I'll be speaking to Jeffrey Baker of Royal Holloway University about his recent book, El Sistema, Orchestrating Venezuela's Youth, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. El Sistema, the massive Venezuelan youth orchestra program, has been hailed in some quarters as the next big idea in music education, if not as the savior of classical music itself. But any who have found the press coverage of El Sistema suspiciously rosy will find quite another account in Baker's engrossing and at times sharply critical book. Baker takes an ethnographic approach to El Sistema, investigating the daily lives and experiences of students and teachers, while simultaneously drawing on recent research in music pedagogy to subject the structure and history of the program to an ideological critique. Jeffrey Baker, welcome to New Books in Music. Hi, Jordan. Why don't you begin by telling me a little bit about your background? How did you get into the academic study of music? Well, I took my time. Um, I, I started playing music when I was young, but I didn't start approaching it as an academic subject until my mid-twenties, in fact, until master's level. Um, and I started doing a mixture of musicology and performance at Music College in London, and then got more and more into the musicology side, so ended up doing a PhD on music at colonial Peru, in fact. And so that was when my interest in Latin America began. And that then led you to your interest in El Sistema in particular? Yes, um, indirectly. I was working a lot in Latin America from the late 1990s onwards um, on my PhD and then subsequent projects. And I first heard about uh, El Sistema actually in an in-flight magazine on a flight, internal flight in Latin America in the early 2000s. And I was fascinated and I tore out this article from the in-flight magazine and stored it away. thought this would be a wonderful project to work on at some point in the future, but it didn't really fit with my plans or movements at that time. So it sort of sat there on the back burner as an idea for, for a number of years. And then in 2007, the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra, the, the top orchestra of El Sistema, came to London for the proms and made its debut at the proms that year. And I, having heard about the, the project, I bought a ticket and I went along to the concert. And it was that experience of going to the proms that catalyzed the decision to actually do this, to go ahead to create a research project around this and go to Venezuela and do some original first-time research on it. The methodology that you use for this particular book is critical ethnography, which isn't something I imagine that you'd have too much call for if you're dealing with the colonial period. How did you decide on that particular approach? Well, I had already begun doing ethnographic work elsewhere, in Cuba, in fact, in the meantime. So I had sort of transitioned already to doing more contemporary work and using ethnography as a tool. And as the critical side, I think that, you know, that simply reflects the fact that um, I think all academic work should be critical. And I think that working on colonial music, on issues of 
of colonialism and power in my PhD, although, you know, relating to the distant past had, had alerted me to critical issues around the study of music that were always going to be there on some sort of level. And I do think that ethnography needs to be a way of critically interrogating musical cultures rather than simply you know, reflecting or reporting. Especially with something that's so systematic as well, you know, El Sistema, it's right there in the name, isn't it? Getting down to the individual experience of it can really open our eyes to some things. Your, your sources for this work, there's hardly anything published outside of Venezuela that's critical about El Sistema, very, very little. Uh, so your sources have tended to be the published accounts from Venezuela, of which there are, even there, there are not that many. And then you have interviews, which a lot of them are anonymous, or you, uh, you indicate in the book that you've, you've changed the names of your respondents. And I assume that this is a, a methodological feature, right? That, uh, when you're, when you're dealing with critical ethnography, when you're dealing with a system that has as much power as, uh, as a system does, that you have to protect your respondents. But because a lot of the people who are listening to this have training essentially in historical fields and don't have to worry about those sorts of things, could you speak a little bit about your methodology and the way that you protected them? Yes. I mean, I think that it's worth bearing in mind that Anonymizing one's sources and indeed where one works is absolutely standard practice in education research, for example. So, you know, if you're going to write uh, an ethnography of a school, you would never say the name of the school. You'd never use the real name of anybody in the school, whatever you were saying about it. So this is absolutely standard practice. And indeed, this is commonly true in sociology, anthropology and so on and so forth. There are exceptions. I mean, my previous work was on popular musicians and popular musicians like to be named because they want publicity, you know. But um, this, that would be the exception rather than the rule. So on one hand, this is just simply standard um, academic practice. On the other hand, as you say, our system is a very powerful organisation. It has a monopoly on classical music virtually in Venezuela. It has a zero-tolerance approach to criticism. So musicians who criticised um, the programme on record would run the risk of being fired or blacklisted. I had numerous examples of people claiming that this had happened to them or people they knew. So this, the only way to do this kind of research was to anonymise it, and people would only, many people would only speak to me under those strict guarantee uh, of anonymity. And, you know, if any of your listeners are interested in following this up, there's been a recently a report was published by a senior researcher, director at New England Conservatory called Lawrence Scripp, who did a series of in-depth interviews with a former Sistema musician called Luigi Mazzocchi, this is now available uh, online, and in this, they discuss this issue of anonymization. And Mazzocchi is actually the first musician in, I think, more than 15 years to go on the record under his own name and make the sort of criticisms that I make in my book. And he talks about the fact that when he decided to do this, other Venezuelan musicians said to him, you must be crazy. Why are you doing this? You'll never work in Venezuela again. So he actually talks through this very issue in this article. That's great. We'll put a link to that on the show notes of the podcast so people can check it out easily. So turning to the book, it's organized in four parts. The first is the institution and its leaders, which lays out the history, structure, and demographics of El Sistema and unpacks some of the mythology surrounding its two most colorful figures, uh, José Antonio Abreu and Gustavo Dudamel. Parts two and three, which for me are really the heart of the book, are sort of complementary. El Sistema bills itself as both a program of musical training and as a mechanism for social change. 
And while you note that those strands can't really be untwisted, you sort of examine it through each of those lenses. Um, and then in part four, titled Impact, you zoom out to a broader frame, considering the economic effects of El Sistema, uh, to the extent that these are knowable, its effects on Venezuelan musical culture. And finally, zooming out even farther, uh, you compare El Sistema with other programs that attempt to combine music education with social action in other Latin American countries and around the world. But before we dive into all of that, um, I think that most people listening to this will have heard of El Sistema. Uh, but they might not know anything very specific about it beyond the idea that there is this massive music education program in Venezuela, which has produced a ferociously talented youth orchestra and in the person of Dudamel, a real superstar conductor. So can I begin by asking you just to explain to us what El Sistema is? Yes, El Sistema was created, in effect, in 1975. It didn't start as El Sistema. It started simply as a national youth orchestra, as a single orchestra, which was created by José Antonio Abreu in that year. And um, several years later, he became more ambitious and created a foundation to support a wider range of youth orchestras, a larger number. And simply this programme expanded and expanded and has been expanding ever since, and now, 40 years later, it is a nationwide programme. The official figures state that there are 700,000 participants in over 400 music schools. And it is effectively an expansion, a multiplication of this original idea, which was 